Today, our interviewee for the Apex is Peter Sutcliffe, with a remarkable racing career during the 1950s and 60s, including four editions of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. He has raced some of the most iconic and desirable competition cars ever built, including an X-Work Jaguar D-Type, one of the original 12 lightweight E-Types, GT40s, the Aston Martin Project 214, a Ferrari 250 GTO, and indeed the beautiful Ferrari P4, amongst many others. Today, we're going to talk a bit about how he got into motorsport, some of the great cars he's owned and raced, hear what it's like racing at Le Mans in the 60s, and hopefully hear a story or two about the fun and camaraderie of racing in that period. Peter, thank you so much for joining us, and let's begin. Yeah, sure, I'm ready. You started racing in the mid to late 50s in a MG and a Fraser Nash. How did you first get into racing, and was motorsport something you were interested in from a young age? Uh, actually, no, Charles. Um... I have to say that, uh, you know, my, my first recollection of cars at all were my parents' two cars up on blocks in the garage uh, during the war. Um, my only involvement with them at that stage was at one time uh, finding a tin of red lead paint and, and painting a good part of my father's uh, uh, standard Flying 20 uh, in that colour, for which I remember... Um, being admonished to say the very least <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until um you know cars started to be out on the road again that uh, i was really concerned about them in the least but what actually tickled my interest in motorsport altogether was um i, I was at school and somebody had left lying around a uh, one of the motorsports it must have been about 1952 i would think and there's a most stirring picture of somebody going absolutely flat out in a, a pre-war Aston Martin, um, probably at a club Silverstone meeting, I would have thought. And I thought, God, that looks like jolly good fun. And uh, it sort of um, woke me up to uh, to, to cars and, and driving and the general movement away from horses, which uh, in which my sister was very expert and which I'd been dragged in, um, you know, almost a sort of a, a supernumerary. So um, we had, uh, my father just bought the previous year, 1951, uh, a Series 1 Land Rover, which in fact I still have here in the garage outside me. And uh, on that I started driving round the uh, fairly restricted um, grounds of our house in, in Yorkshire. Um, but, you know, I, I mastered the, the techniques of actually handling, you know, a vehicle. Um, it had, of course, a crash um, change from first to second, which um, which I got my hands and feet around eventually. Um, and from then on, I was really seriously interested in cars. My, my parents had both bought um, the uh, 2.6-litre Ligondas of the early 50s. My mother had a drophead and father a saloon. And those were the first sort of performance cars, if you could call them that, that I ever drove. And, of course, always under the strictest uh, supervision of uh, of my parents. But uh, I, I seemed to sort of fall into them quite easily. But, uh, but, but that's how it all started. And then uh, when, when I left school and um, had to get to university over in Leeds from where I was living in Huddersfield, um, my parents bought me a, a second-hand uh, TD MG from uh, a garage in, in Bradford, 
Um, it was about two and a half years old, I suppose, and uh, had been fairly well thrashed. Um, but we had a very good engineer at the mill who rebuilt the engine for me. And that that was my wheels for the next few years. And honestly, Charles, I don't believe it was ever actually stone cold. I, I, I was just in it the whole time when I wasn't actually sat at a desk or running around on a hockey pitch or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, that really taught me a great deal about road craft and, uh, and car control because I was always going a bit too fast, although that's a relative speed when you're in a TDMG. Um, but I did spend what bit of money I had on making it go faster. And it was the very far first car I raced um at Aintree in a in a BARC club meeting in I don't know where it was, nineteen fifty I don't know, six maybe or seven. Um anyway, you you you'll see the records if you need them. Um and and I had a stupid day out, gave a third in my race, uh, which was won as far as I remember by uh, a certain McGuinness Island, as he was known then, in a, in a Riley. But I was hooked. I thought, this is just absolutely great. Brilliant. And then how did you end up getting the Fraser Nash? Ah, that was, uh, that was actually a 21st present from my parents. Although they, they didn't, they didn't realize it or choose it uh, themselves. Um, I, it, I'd been competing against it at a lot of small events, uh, hill climbs and sprints and so on. And it was owned at that time by a chap called Frank Elliott, who lived up in the north. And I thought, that is the most amazing car. I have just absolutely got to have it. And cheeky little chap that I was, I did a deal with um, Frank over the phone. And I drove up to Middlesbrough, I think, wherever it was he lived, with my TD and did a part exchange for it, drove it back to Yorkshire, uh, arrived back in time for supper, and uh, my parents said, what's, what's that outside? I said, that's, uh, that's my 21st present. Well, you can imagine the shock <laughs> horror of that. But anyway, God bless parents. They, 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 they weathered that particular storm. Uh, and that was my my one and only car for getting around everywhere, parties, um, you know, uh, lectures, and you know, just my wheels for for two or three years. A wonderful car, and it was quite a famous car. Uh, and then I understand you stopped racing for a couple of years in, in the fifties to do your national service. Um, after which you bought a very historic car, the X Works, a, a career cost D type. How did that yeah. come about? Um, well, pr prior to that, I had I'd swapped the um, the Lamar replica Fraser Nash for one of the three Sebrings that I found lying around on the upper floor at um, AFN in um, in London, and um, knowing that it would be a, a faster car than than the uh, Lamar replica, I, I made a deal with them and bought it, and I raced that extensively in. 58, 59, finally qualifying for the BRDC, which was one of my major aims. Um, but and then I went, I, I drove that as a, well, once again as a road car, and um, 
doing my national service and um, doing going through the officer selection process down at Mons at Aldershot. That was the car that I used to drive out from the barracks on if, I, if we were going up to London or wherever. And the uh, the, um, the guards on duty were always uh, quite enthused to see this amazing thing racketing past the, the guard room. But I did get quite a bit of flack from rather more senior personnel and told to kindly just uh, ease off a little bit, if you don't mind. Anyway, um, I, went, I went and did my, my uh, post-officer training with my regiment in Germany. And while I was there, um, my, uh, my step-grandmother uh, died and left me a little bit of money. So when I came out of the army at the end of 1961, um, I thought I'd better look for something that's going to be um, not much more exciting to drive. And at the time, there were two, two cars that, up for offer that I was fancied. The, um, the, um, the DBR-1 and DBR, um, no, just the DBR-1. Uh, there was and an EV4 GT that were that were owned by um, oh, what was the name of the pig farmer over in, uh, in Norfolk? Um, hell of a nice chap, and he had lovely cars. And I, I went and had a look at those because they were they were in the price bracket that I. And when you think of what they were then, I mean, it's just appalling what they are now. Anyway, and the other one was was a, a D-type Jaguar, and. Um, I went to see that one. It's the one that Mike Salmon had, and um, I drove it on the road just around where they were living, just north of London, and thought that's absolutely great. So um, they're similar price to the Aston Martin. So I bought that and drove it home on the road. And what a wonderful road car it was! It was a famous um, Executoria cost uh, car. It had been a, a spare factory team car for Le Mans. In I think 1955, no, 55. Yes, yeah. So it was already quite an old car, but Mike had had a very successful club racing, couple of club racing reasons with it, and I thought, well, that that'll do me just fine, and it did. Because I see you actually had quite a lot of success racing the car, even in the early 60s. Was as you said, it was by then, yeah, quite quite an old car uh, comparatively, and. Um, Though I do believe it, it came to rather an unfortunate end at Snetterton. Is that right? Uh, that that is right. Of course, it didn't come to the end, but it did did get uh, modified quite considerably. And <laughs> um, it, it it was a long long distance race um, held in the pouring rain at Snetterton, uh, which is a circuit I knew well because I'd um, I'd done you know some of the the three-hour autosport races there that ended the uh, competition years in the, just before my army time. And um, the, the, the field had thinned out hugely. The, the only cars in front of me were Graham Hill in a, a Lotus and uh, Jim Clark in, um, I can't remember what he was driving now. Uh, anyway, I was third behind them. And... Um, not not threatened by anybody else, and I wasn't threatening them either, I'm afraid. But coming down the Norwich Strait, which is a long strait, came finished up at the hairpin, 
um, a, a, a stream had suddenly broken through uh, a large puddle that had been on the side of the track and, and had really flooded uh, the road just when I was at the, um, the, the braking uh, point for the hairpin. So the, the rear of the car was, was light. Um, and it got away from me, um, spun round and charged backwards towards the infield. And um, I remember watch, looking over my shoulders, which I could do quite easily in those days around the fin. And I saw it was heading straight for a Marsorce point, which in those days was just a mound of earth with these uh, two chaps standing behind it. And uh, I remember quite plainly watching them shifting first to one side, then the other, as they tried to decide which side I was going to hit this thing on. Anyway, I hit it backwards, still going pretty fast. And, and I was thrown out onto the track. Uh, I wasn't really hurt at all. There was a crack on my crash helmet, but um, I, I was basically fine. Uh, and the car barreled off to the other side of the track and, um, uh, and was, looked very sorry for itself. Yeah. Anyway, I got, I got driven back up to Yorkshire by Jimmy Bloomer, who was another well-known Yorkshire Northern driver. Um, and he dropped me off at home. And um, a week later, I went down to pick it up. Of course, I was, I'd gone there in a Land Rover and trailer. Uh, and the Land Rover and trailer were standing in the deserted paddock at Smetterton. Somebody or some kind of friend had loaded the Jaguar back onto the trailer. And, um, and I drove it off to Jaguars in Coventry and left it there over the weekend um, with a note stuck on it saying, you know, please fix it. Anyway, wow. <laughs> I, had a, I had a phone call a few days later from Phil Lever, who was running the service and that side of Jaguars at the time. And he said, Peter, I'm sorry, we, we actually haven't got the time or the, or the parts or possibly even the skills to, to straighten this one out. But we'll give you all the extra bits and pieces that we've got from D-types that we've assembled over various years. Um, so they gave me all that. And uh, in the end, I found uh, people to rebuild it for me. And it turned out to be uh, a car that looked as though it had never been scratched in its life, mm. and, which I eventually sold to Neil Corner. And he had a great time with it. And it had a series of lovely owners ever since. Fantastic. And and then I believe you were offered one of the 12 lightweight E-types by Jaguar and began a, a few years of uh, unbelievably cram-packed racing with a lot of success, including, I think it was outright victory in the 1964 Prix de Paris at Monterey. What was it like as a privateer racing app? You make it all work. Well, it was, it was very nice that I was offered one of these lightweights because I'd already been entered for the uh, the big Easter Monday Goodwood meeting, which was when the British motor racing season started. In, um, and um, I was in the paddock, but with no car to drive. And um, uh, Mr. England approached me and, and said, you know, would you be interested in having one of these lightweight cars? And it was the time when Graham Hill, you know, was just beating uh, Mike Parks in the GTO and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, yes. Please, definitely. So, so they built one, and uh, I picked it up from the factory in the middle of the year. And um, 
I was hugely happy with it. It was it was it was a wonderful privateer's car. It was strong, reliable, easy to fix, um, and um, uh, and a beautiful handling car. And that was how um, I was able to have you know the measure of success that I did. Yeah, and and I, lo- I remember looking at the, the stats for when you were racing during that period in, in the Jaguar, and it was quite remarkable. You were racing pretty much every week, um, you know, around Europe and in in the UK. Um, you know, what was it like going from race to race meeting like that? And then how did it work with, I think you had John Pearson helping you out on the, on the mechanical side. Yes. Dear, dear John Pearson was a hugely important part of my, well, my racing life ever since I got the D-type Jaguar because uh, when I had my first race in it at um, Snetterton, not the, not the one in which I, I bent it, um, John Pearson, who, who I had no knowledge of, came up to me in the paddock and said, you know, can I, can I help you with the car? Can I do anything? Um, so, you know, we, we got chatting and talking together and we, we seemed to like each other. So that, that morphed to him being the chap who looked after the cars when I wasn't looking after them and would always go to race meetings with, with me, whether it was in England or on, on the continent. Um, I'd, I'd bought a, a lorry, um, a, uh, a per, Perkins B6 diesel comma, um, which take, took the, uh, the Jaguar very nicely. And, and we, we drove all over Europe in that, going to meetings, coming back to England, going out again. It was a time when it was so easy to do that sort of thing. Um, in the very earliest days of my going on the continent with the Fraser Nashes, uh, we used to fly them over with what was called the Air Bridge, I think, or something from from South End to uh, to um, to France. Um, but in the lorry, it was you know onto the ferry, across the Channel, and off we'd bounce at sort of 55 miles an hour around to Europe with the Jaguar in the back. And because oh. it was such a strong car, it um, you know, it was a a car that was not expensive to race as long as you didn't blow it up or, or smash it up, which I was lucky enough not to do. Really? And so with things like starting money and prize money um, and not living a, a wildly extravagant life, it was possible to, you know, have something in the bank at the end of the year. Yeah, amazing. And... Um... Times have changed now. I think you'd be lucky to have money in the bank as a privateer in any sort of form of motorsport. But there we go. And of, of course, you racing in Africa has also been a key part of your racing career. Indeed, you had a lot of success out there, including a class win and second overall. I think partnered with Dickie Stoop in the Kailami Nine Hours. It would yeah. be racing in Africa so special for you. It it came about actually through through David Piper, who obviously I was consistently coming across. In uh, in all the English um, and some of the European races that I was in with the with the E type, and he had had a seat not a season, but he went out for the nine hours one year to uh, Kyle Army, and the the chap who ran the whole show, Alex Picknote, said, "Can you find, you know, three or four more people who'd like to come out and um, do the nine hours and maybe stay on and do what was called the the Springbok series." which David actually had never done. He'd always gone back after the nine hours, having won it with his GTO. And um, 
So Alex uh, contacted me and asked me if I'd like to come out, and we did a deal. So um, I put the car on the boat, which is what one did in those days, and um, out to Africa it went. And I had no previous experience of Africa, but I had such a wonderful time when I was there. They were so hospitable, so kind, so relaxed, and yet uh, efficient and effective about the way they ran things. Um, that I thought this is this is a, a wonderful uh, way to go motor racing. Yeah, and uh, and and indeed you ended up moving there, I believe, back it was '67, apparently. Uh, yes, uh, I did. Um, at the end of '67, that, that's right. I had uh, decided by then that I wasn't going to go back into the the, the family um, business world that uh, I could have been involved in, and, uh, and which I'd sort of started at the university and so on. Um, and I thought I'm going to go. I'm going to go make a life out in South Africa, and and so so I did. I, I went out there. I got a job with an engineering company, and um, and said goodbye um, to racing, other than acting sometimes as a um, an official at Kailami for them for their racing days, yep. just so that I sort of kept abreast of the few people that I knew in racing in South Africa. Yeah, and you mentioned David Piper after your E-Type. I believe you bought um, actually my favourite Ferrari 250 GTO chassis 4491 GT, which was David Piper's. I think he turned it into a bit of a hot rod with a cut-down roof and a number of other changes. <laughs> I must admit, it, it looked fantastic in your customary dark green with the lower roof and with the headlight covers. What was it like racing that that GTO in period? It, it was a lovely car. It was David's second car, um, and. It was very fast. Everything that he had done had improved it. He had his amazing mechanic called Fax Dunn, who I think was an Exetonian, although you wouldn't have realized it. Uh, he was a, a chap at a very, very hot uh, turn of temper. Um, but he was a fastidious mechanic, and his cars were always beautifully prepared and, uh, and, and always ran extraordinarily. And David seldom had any sorts of problems with his cars. And having never been able to quite catch up with it, uh, with the uh, with the lightweight E-Type, I thought, you know, if you can't beat them, buy them. So uh, I had a, a a good offer for the E-Type from Edward Nelson, who bought it and raced it uh, subsequently, and um, and I got David's um, Ferrari, and. It was such a beautiful car to drive and so easy to maintain. John Pearson soon got his hands around it and was able to sort out what few things needed doing on a, a race maintenance point of view. And um, uh, and I had a lot of success with it, particularly in Europe. Yeah. And then through uh, race... Oh, sorry. No, and I, th and I think, you know, that was where um, is probably spotted that I, I could be useful to them because I... I did uh, gain them a lot of the, the GT points, which they, you know, which I was going for, and yeah. um, uh, and my car was a was a good performer for them. Indeed, and I believe that uh, you actually got to know Enzo Ferrari a bit, and and of course you ended up racing for the Ferrari team at Le Mans in 1967 in their beautiful 330 P4. Yeah. What were your memories of Enzo Ferrari, and what was it like racing for Scuderia Ferrari or CFAC as it was known at the time? Yeah. 
Well, I I, I never I never met um, Ferrari because he he very seldom went to race meetings. It was an extraordinary event if he did. So the first time I met him was after I'd had a phone call from Sino Gorzzi, who was her his sort of PA, who said, um, you know, we we'd like you to come and talk to us about driving our car at Le Mans. So I, I hopped onto an aeroplane and went down to um, to Italy, and uh, they picked me up from the airport and whisked me up to the factory. And and the first time I actually met Enzo Ferrari was in his office. Um, he didn't enjoy speaking English, although I'm sure he could. So at the time, my French was fairly sound because I'd been living so much in in Europe and speaking French almost on a day-to-day basis. So so we chatted away in French. Um, apparently, he didn't ever really want to employ anybody to drive his cars unless he had um, met them and sort of sized them up and summed them up from whatever points of view he was interested in. But obviously, I, I clicked enough of those points. And um, uh, it's not quite like sort of throwing me the keys of a P4, but um, he said, okay, um, off you go to Le Mans. The cars had already gone. And um, I had um, an Aston Martin at the time, and I got somebody to drive it across to uh, Calais for me. I, I flew up to Calais, picked it up, and um, I drove to Le Mans and um, sat in the P4 for the very first time. Wow. Well, surrounded by all these, you know, these brown overall Ferrari mechanics whom I'd seen, you know, so many of the meetings to which I'd been in Europe. And uh, suddenly there I was, you know, in the pits um, discussing things with them and um, deciding, you know, what, if anything, I wanted or thought might be changed, which probably was a bit cheeky. And in the end, I don't think they changed anything. But it was a car that I, I... found I, I could handle quite easily. Yeah. And they were, it, it, was, a, it was a very nice uh, setup to, to work for. Uh, Franco Lini was the, uh, was the chef de keep. He was a very well-known Italian um, um, boat uh, writer. He was an author and he followed um, motor racing in a big way, Ferrari especially, of course. Um, and, um, you know, the little team of people around him was um, a huge pleasure which to work. And, uh, and Gunter Klaas was uh, my co-driver. Well, at least I should say I was the co-driver with Gunter Klaas because he was the, you know, he was what I call, you know, ahead of me. So we practiced the car and unfortunately he crashed it badly um, trying to avoid a, a car that got in his way. And uh, Ferrari overnight flew up a 14-man team of bodybuilders and so on from uh, from the factory. And um, <clears throat> they put it all together uh, so you would hardly know that it had been bent. It was, it was pretty damaged around the front. Uh, and this took them, you know, a, a fair old time. But they got it together and... Um, the organizers allowed Gunter Klaas to take it out on the morning of the race, which is normally unheard of, just to make sure it was running in a straight line and would get around the circuit. What they hadn't done, unfortunately, as 
mostly happened after cars had been well exercised in practice was, was to change engines so that you had a new one for the race. But they didn't do that with ours. And that ultimately was the reason for its demise. Because <clears throat> the engine failed, which is most unusual um, in those sorts of cars. But uh, one of the timing wheels that drove the, the camshaft um, train had been um, incorrectly hardened and it failed. And it was the camshaft that also drove the fuel injection pump. So that, that was the end of the engine. Wow. Uh, Gunter Class was driving when it happened. And it wasn't anything that either of us drivers could have done anything about. But I was hugely disappointed to have not finished because uh, we were doing well. Yeah. And, uh, but, and before, but it was huge fun. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And obviously before 1967 in the, in the Ferrari P4, you'd, you'd raced uh, three, the three previous years as well. And actually some of my absolute favorite cars, you know, first was in 64 in the, in the Project 214. Again, glorious car. Then it was the Scuderia Flippinetti Shelby Cobra. Again, ah, Cobra. car. <laughs> really? And then the GT40, uh, again, Scuderia Filippinetti, GT40 66. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I raced them all uh, four or five times just in historic cars, uh, including my Corvette and, and so on. And it really is a, a pretty magic place. You know, Was there a particular year that stands out for you? And, and what made Le Mans such a special event for you? You know, it is a special event. Um, <clears throat> it, it's, it's an astonishingly rigorous test of a machine. Um, and you you've got to be both fast and and mechanically sensitive to 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 get a car around uh, Le Mans for 24 hours. Um, it's almost impossible just to get into a car and drive it, thrash it flat out for 24 hours long Le Mans. It just is so unforgiving. It, it is or, or was in in those days uh, the most wonderful circuit and, and and amazingly fast in all sorts of super places. Um, I mean, doing doing, I did 200 miles an hour down the state in the Aston Martin, wow. you know, which was uh, which was a pretty good effort for the for the Aston Martin. The, the the Ferrari actually wasn't that much faster, but it was faster around the circuit because it was just you know technically more up to date. Um, but there's just a, an atmosphere to Le Mans that is um, sort of intoxicating. You've got to be careful that you don't get carried away by it all, of course. But um, just being on that track with quarter of a million people watching the race and studying the form, and the 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 challenge of driving a superb car and keeping it going for 24 hours mm -hmm. is, um, to me, absolutely captivating. Yeah. And I've got to ask because I because I've got a Cobra myself, and I'm a big fan of the Shelby Cobras. Why why was the Shelby Cobra so bad? It was awful, Charles. <laughs> it was absolutely awful. Um, it was before the the uh, um, Shelby and his team had had tamed what they call the Cobra. It was a it was a savage thing. It, it was it, it was just an awful drive. It was like a like a brick. You know, it went fast, but it didn't have any of what the American would call uh, roadability. Um, so you came to a corner and you were you were all at sea. Uh, it had a sort of dead steering, a very sort of stiff suspension, which was 
you know, it wasn't wasn't floppy, but it was it was so stiff that the car would hop around. Um, and it was, um, I know, it, it, it was. I think probably the 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 car that I least enjoyed racing. Um, uh, and <laughs> I have to say, I was I was delighted when it blew up in the middle of the night when um, when my co-driver was driving it, so I didn't even have to walk home. Um, but it was um, it was a Filippinetti car. Which which had been organised for me by Ford, and um, and so Philip Benetta asked me to drive his ET40 the following year, which is which is uh, how I got to the uh, to Le Mans in '66 um, with the with the GT40. Absolutely, and, and I believe that you owned two different GT40s yourself, and again, quite a lot of success in them. Yes, I did. They they, they once again were a wonderful. Um, uh, privateer's car because they were they were so strong they were they were lovely cars to drive um unfortunately the the one problem with them their achilles heel was the was the the four two eighty nine engine which in those days had not been adequately developed to withstand the sort of stresses that you we were trying to uh, put through it. So you were always having to drive with your eye on the, the gauges to uh, work out when things might have been starting to go wrong. And um, but but they were they were they were cheap to fix if anything went wrong in those days. And um, I mean I dread to think what it would cost to get one re-engineered now. But um, but uh, but I did enjoy very much the uh, the first one, which was a conventional. Um, Coupe, I suppose you would say, and I went to Ford Advanced Vehicles uh, the following year, and there was one of the open cars, sort of abandoned in, in the workshop. And of course, they made three of those in 289 configuration, and I said, um, "What about you preparing that one for me?" So they did, um, and. Um, and I, I drove it in all the prototype races because it was classed as a prototype. And it wasn't much faster than the uh, than the, the closed one. In fact, it didn't handle quite as well because it wasn't quite as uh, rigid, not not having the roof to it. Um, we we took it to Spa, which is a very fast circuit, as you know, and uh, I fitted a, a sort of a roof over the top of it to make it a little bit more streamlined. Uh, and and Brian Redman and I um, ha- had a great success with it there in the pouring rain. Um, but after that, there were no more races for the um, for the prototype um, category. So I bought an old um, note card from Paul Hawkins, who was a, a good mate, coining the market in in sort of GT40 bits. So I bought a tub, cut the um, Cut the top part of it off and grafted it onto the the chassis of one one two and made it into a conventional um, GT forty. I had an interest in a, a panel beating shop in, in in Yorkshire where I was living, and we put all the panels up in the in the roof that came off the open car, um, which you know later on would have been worth a lot of money. But then the whole place burnt down, so that was that was <laughs> the end of that little uh, uh, financial present. Um, but uh, that was the car that I finally finished up racing with 
you know, on my own account. And um, I was leaving for South Africa at the end of the year. Uh, and my parents quite rightly said, look, you can't leave this thing here. You know, you you, you must get rid of it. Um, anyway, nobody, nobody actually really wanted it. So I gave it away to some people up in the north who, 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 who raced it subsequently. And I'm not quite sure where it is now. Um, but anyway, um, and most of my racing stuff I, I gave away because I thought nobody's going to want to know, you know, what the oil pressure or the gearbox temperatures was after sort of 50, 50 miles um, of racing, uh, which I could have told them once. But anyway, uh, I'd have to make up the figures now. But wow. it was, um, uh, and then off I went to to South Africa and uh, Ferrari had asked me if I wanted to drive for them next year, but I, I said, you know, I've, you know, I'm 30 now or 31, I forget which. Um, I said, look, I've got to, I've got to get back to work. You know, I've yeah. had a wonderful life with cars. I mean, it was a brilliant period that period, that those 10 years from sort of 57 to 67. Uh, wonderful, dangerous years, um, which for me was the excitement. You know, uh, sanitized motor racing doesn't appeal to me at all. Um, but the tragedy was, of course, that we lost a lot of people and I lost a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was the flavor. Yeah. That was the In flavor. Interesting. You hear, hear you talk about it. Obviously, it sounds like there was a lot of camaraderie and the fun with the other drivers and mechanics, you know, beyond the actual racing itself. Who, who were your favorite contemporaries back then? And do you have any good stories that stand out? Ah. Gosh, the, 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 not what I call sort of good stories, really, but, but there was a very nice atmosphere with the people whom, whom we met, usually only at race meetings. You know, they were what you'd call your car friends. Um, the chances of socializing with them on a more general basis was difficult because we were, between us, we were living all over the world. I mean, some of the English ones, like Mike Salmon and, um, well, David Piper, of course, and um, uh, Mark Koenig, and uh, there were there were people who, you know, I would see also sometimes in England between um, races or testing when we'd get together probably in London or somewhere and have a good evening out. But for, for the rest, it was, um, you know, we enjoyed ourselves at the race meetings but racing was it was still the important thing we weren't going out and getting drunk at night or anything like that um and you know we were determined to do our best on the day the nice thing about it or one of the nicest things about it was they were all people whom you could trust on the track uh, there were a number of cowboys around um but the, the one all the people that i really liked and that I met a lot were all people who you would be certain, certain would do, you know, the right thing in ever, any given situation. Um, and, so, and, and so it was. I was never, never frightened of the people against whom I was racing. Yep. Interesting. And, and to end with, we have some quick fire questions. So what cars are currently on your driveway or in your garage? Uh, well, there's the old Land Rover. Um, there's the last, almost the last EV6 Mark II. Um, there's a 1924 Bentley 3 litre. And there's a 1964 Alfa Romeo, Alfa Romeo um, 
uh, Julia Spider. All cars which are eminently practical, each of them does something different, you know, but between them they completely cover all my current interests in, in driving. As in, so you don't have a modern car? Uh, no, Liza has a, um, a uh, 325 BMW Cabriolet, um, which is a wonderful car and to which she's absolutely devoted. And, you know, that's a, that's a car that, you know, is sort of every day. Fantastic. And, uh, and then favourite circuit? Favourite circuit. It's got to it's be the Nürburgring. It's got to be the Nürburgring. I drove around the Nürburgring, Nürburgring first when I was um, with my regiment in Germany. And uh, our MO, um, uh, Dick Rains, was a great car man. He had a Porsche 356 or something or other. And um, we said, let's, let's go to the Nürburgring. You know, it wasn't, wasn't all that far away from where we were stationed. So, so we went in his, we went in his bar, his, uh, his car. I didn't think the one I had, um, and uh, Porsches I never particularly enjoyed driving, but we whizzed round the uh, the Nurburgring, uh, paying our sort of ten marks or whatever it was a a, a lap, and um, and I just knew it was a magnificent circuit, and astonishingly, uh, I I lent it almost perfectly in those. Uh, four or five laps, which I did in uh, 1951, uh, which stood me in huge stead when I first went there with a racing car, you know, in a, two or three years later. But uh, a wonderful test of car and driver. I, love, I loved um, Spa because it was so incredibly dangerous. Um, and it really, really kept you sharp. Yep. I think I think that the of all the people we've interviewed, pretty much every single person has, has said Spa as their as their favourite circuit, which is which is interesting. Yeah. And um, I think the next question you, you've answered this, and I know that the worst car you've ever raced is, is sounds like the Scuderia, Scuderia Filippinetti Shelby Cobra. But what's the best car you've ever raced? Gosh, the best car I've ever raced. Um, that's a tricky one. Um, that's a tricky one. Um. The best car I ever. I, look, it's it, it's a toss-up. I mean, uh, I, I love the lightweight. I, I love the GTO. They were they were both the most wonderful cars from which, uh, according to your skill, you 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 could get absolutely the most out of them, and they and they wouldn't let you down. Yeah. You you could always, you know, subconsciously know what the thing was going to do in any given situation. And um, and and it would keep you safe, which yeah. which they both did. Um, I loved them both. I, I would love to have them both still, um, but I'd be living in probably slightly more luxury than I am if I <laughs> if I get them for all longer than I did. Uh, the GTO particularly. Yeah. It, it was sold a few years ago for the most enormous sum of money. Yeah. Um, but but there you go. You know it's. Uh, Racing was a was a, a wonderful experience in my life. I was lucky to race when I did, in such an exciting time, um, and still be able to achieve it without spending a great deal of money. Um, you know, in the, in the whole of the years I was racing, I, I never had very much money involved, and 
And suddenly, when I gave up in, in, 19, in 1968, um, the sort of money I had tied up in, in, in my, my, my little team would probably have just about paid for a gearbox rebuild in, in cars, which suddenly became astonishingly complex and expensive and, um, you know, required high levels of maintenance. Yep. I just escaped that, and that was just my good fortune. Yeah, well, certainly in my eyes, that you, you managed to race in the absolute golden era of, of certainly for me at least, that, that GT period um, of the early 60s. It um, was just superb. And, and my last question is, what's your most memorable racing moment? I suppose probably uh, the first time I stood on the podium at the top of it, and heard the the national anthem played for me. Well, and and that, do you remember where was, that was? That I think was at Spa. In which car? Um, which was it? It was the um, was it the E type? Um, God, you know, no, it, might, it was either the E type or the Ferrari. I can't remember which now. Well, both. It's a, it's a long time ago, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> both superb cars. Well, well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's been great hearing all some of your stories, and uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm horribly uh, envious, um, in, in a good way, of, of your of your racing period. I think those are the cars I love these days, and I only wish that I could have been around to uh, maybe tag along um, to some of your some of your racing back then. But um, yeah, thank you so much. That's been absolutely superb, and um, hope to uh, hope to see you uh, again soon. Okay, good. Brilliant. I look forward to meeting you, Charles. Absolutely.